0: This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. Thank you so much for joining us again. I found it really interesting that progressive activist Ron Sider's group, Evangelicals for Social Action, has now dropped the word evangelical from its name altogether. And the executive director of the group told Christianity Today that the name change was an act of hospitality, adding, our audience is still evangelical, it's post-evangelical and it's evangelical adjacent. Now, I have absolutely no idea what evangelical adjacent actually means, but in some ways the switch is indicative of a movement within evangelicalism that is less and less evangelical per se, and more and more obsessed with social justice. But as my next guest points out, biblical Christianity and ideological social justice are incompatible worldviews. So what happens if Christianity becomes totally engulfed with social justice? For a lot of Christians right now, that possibility does not seem very remote. We're going to talk about it today with Scott David Allen, president of Disciple Nations Alliance and author of the book, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, an Urgent Appeal to Fellow Christians in a Time of Social Crisis. Scott, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here.
3: Great to be on, Janet. Thanks for having me.
0: You bet. Well, you say the Evangelical Church is in grave danger of abandoning true justice for the imposter of social justice. What distinction would you draw between true justice, biblical justice, and what we're talking about as social justice?
3: Well, yeah, it's it's obviously that's the key question. Uh, to me, biblical justice, first and foremost, it's a deep subject, and so you can go in a lot of directions with it. But first and foremost, and this is the way I define it in the book. Biblical justice is basically alignment with that standard of goodness or morality that comes from the scriptures. Uh, social justice uh, has really—it's an atheistic kind of a movement. It, it, so it denies the reality of God. It's not about alignment to God's standard for goodness or righteousness. It is about uh, working towards a a kind of a world of equality of outcomes, uh, where there are no disparities between groups. It's it's very heavily influenced by Marxism. So it's a very different concept, but uh, they both, you know, both Christians and people that uh, adhere to this worldview use the same word, justice.
0: Yeah. But you have to figure out which justice they're talking about and what the definition is, as you say. I thought it was interesting. You mentioned that you saw some of this play out when you were with Food for the Hungry for a while, this organization, and you were drawn, you said, to leftist activists like Ron Sider, whom I mentioned earlier, Jim Wallace, people will know who those names are. Tell us a little bit about that. How how did you learn about social justice and see it in action? And what are your thoughts from having seen it, you know, years ago and now seeing what's going on in current evangelical? Yeah.
3: Well, so yeah, I joined the Christian Relief and Development Organization, Food for the Hungry. um, I was like 25 years ago, out of college. I graduated from university in Oregon, and um, you know, at that time, the evangelical church was also divided on the subject of justice. Where, and there's a real history to this. I don't want to go into too much detail, but more conservative or kind of Bible-believing Christians at that time. Um, were reacting against uh, something that had happened in the Church 100 years prior, uh, where the word justice or social kind of got co-opted by the, this movement called the Social Gospel. Yes. So, in reaction to that, you had a whole bunch of kind of more Bible-believing Christians say, we really shouldn't, you know, the, the mission of the Church should really be separate from these ideas of social change, cultural change. Um, justice in terms of care for the poor and the needy. We need to stick to biblical basics, you know, evangelism, basic discipleship, kind of Bible reading, getting people into church, all really good things, uh, but uh, kind of unfortunately they had separated themselves um, from other really important things that the church needs to be involved in, in terms of uh, care for the poor, and really frankly influencing culture for, for, uh, for the kingdom of God. And, um, so when I, you know, joined Food for the Hungry, the people in my circles that we're talking about that were people like, um, yeah, we we're, we're partic- particularly Ron Sider, you know, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger was a very influential book for me. Um, they, here were evangelicals who were concerned about justice and poverty and concern for the poor, so I was definitely drawn to that, um, because I felt a calling to work with the poor. But, um... Yeah, over the years, um, I think what happened for me personally is that I began to see that uh, there was a distinction between what they were saying in terms of care for the poor, which was largely uh, kind of this idea that the poor were helpless victims and that their poverty was a result of um, wealthy Western countries, the United States, really kind of stealing the wealth through colonialism or whatnot. And so they were more or less helpless victims, and they needed powerful, wealthy Western nations to uh, help lift them out of poverty. And I began to see that really wasn't the solution to poverty. Uh, Poverty wasn't so much rooted in income inequality as it was in false worldview beliefs. And if you could disciple people in a distinctively biblical worldview— um, including, you know, this understanding of e- economy and resources, that was much more important than lifting them out of poverty. So I began to become kind of, uh, I don't know, it just uh, I, I lost the the the, the, glean, the <laughs> that. <laughs> I'd originally had got a little bit uh, lost there with some of that teaching.
0: Yeah, well, and also, it's interesting. It's an interesting subject for me, too, personally, going back in my family and some of the social Mm -hmm. justice influences in my own family over the last couple of generations. But this has been done before. That's one of my main frustrations, looking at where a lot of evangelicals now are all excited about social justice as if it's some kind of new concept. It's not a new concept. And as you're pointing out here, the older generation of the more progressive of evangelicals tried this all before, and and Bush and his social gospel has been tried before, what ends up getting lost in all of this, and I think we need to remember this, is evangelism and some of the important things that God has called us to do in order to reach lost people. It sometimes gets swallowed up in this desire to change the culture for maybe some good reasons, like you say, helping the poor. Mercy ministry has always been an important part of Christians' lives, but it seems to end up becoming a very worldly outlook as opposed to a a biblical outlook is that a shift that you've seen taking place as well. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Janet, you at the beginning when you set this up, you talked about how these are distinctive worldviews and that's so true. Um, and they have very different understandings of what's really the root problem in the world and how do you solve that problem? So for for a Bible-believing Christian's like you and me, the root problem in the world is sin. You know, we we are alienated from God and that alienation works out in all sorts of ways in terms of broken relationships and brokenness in our world. So if you want to fix things in this in the world, you have to go all the way down to that, you know, that root of brokenness in our sinful heart. Yeah. And people need to be saved. They need to be they need new hearts. They need renewed minds. They need new life in Christ. That's that's basic biblical Christianity. I think where a lot of Christians have kind of missed the boat um, is they they kind of feel like well then once they accept Christ that's the end of the, you know that's that's the end of mission and I would say no that's really the beginning once people are uh, saved then they have to be discipled in the biblical worldview and live that out in their vocations and in their lives in a way that you know serves as salt and light to change culture. Now, social justice advocates—they do not believe in original sin. They don't believe, essentially, that people are fallen. Those aren't—that's just not the, the way that they think. Uh, problems in the world are uh, basically rooted in systems and structures, yeah. social systems and social structures that result in inequality. So, you have to change society by changing structures and systems, and this is why. There's so much talk today about uh, systemic racism or structural inequality,
0: Yep. so it's all
3: about changing social systems and structures. Uh, You know, as Christians we go, well yeah, there's some reality to that for sure, so our systems and structures can be broken and fallen, but just replacing old structures with new ones, old governments with new ones, isn't going to change things unless people change at the heart, level of their hearts. That's really the important. thing that's missing from, uh, from, from ideological social justice. You just don't believe that.
0: Totally right. We're going to pause. Scott David Allen with us, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. That's his book. We'll come back to the conversation after this. GoFran and Khaled, two little boys from Syria, were orphaned four years ago. But when they came to Lebanon with their aunt as refugees, Heart for Lebanon was waiting for them. Heart for Lebanon was there to provide Christian education, emergency supplies, and the hope of the gospel to these two boys. Now they listen attentively to the Bible stories they're hearing and are memorizing Bible verses. They have hope now because of what God is doing through Heart for Lebanon. Your investment of $116 will help two families to get emergency supplies that they need to survive during the next 60 days but best of all these families will hear the gospel of jesus christ call now 888-247-5499 here's camille Melki founder of heart for lebanon to explain why he's encouraged right now
4: you could sense maybe from my voice the excitement right the sense of god has us here in a time and location in history that is unprecedented this is an opportunity time god-sized opportunity time like never before Right now, you could see uh, a wave of people in great anticipation at what God will further do in our midst in the years to come. Because I believe that the crisis in Syria is a long-term crisis, unfortunately so. But I also believe that uh, right now, we are starting to reap what has been sowed for many, many years in the lives of the refugees. We are seeing churches full of Syrian refugees. We're seeing Muslims coming to Christ. We're seeing children uh, now being the greatest testimony and the best evangelists within their communities. This is the result of many years of hard work and greater, I believe, by faith, far greater results are coming in the near future.
0: Your gift of $116 will allow Heart for Lebanon to help two families survive during the next 60 days. Call now, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com, 888-247-5499.
2: You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet.
0: Thank you so much for being with us. We are talking with Scott David Allen why social justice is not biblical justice, is the name of his book. He is president of Disciple Nations Alliance. And what an important topic for our own day. It's not just out there in the culture where we're constantly hearing about social justice, this kind of cultural Marxist ideology. It's in the church, it's all over the church, it's all over the seminaries. We have a lot of problems in evangelicalism by allowing this kind of mentality and this kind of ideology to seep into what ought to be the bastion of defending the truth, the biblical worldview. You know, Scott, you said something very interesting I wanted to go back to just for a moment. You were pointing out that what really is at issue here between biblical justice versus social justice is identifying the root problem in the world and how you deal with it. And Christians obviously believe our main problem is sin and we need a savior. And so that's the main problem for the SJWs, the social justice warriors, as you said, they don't believe in original sin. They believe that everything can be, be you know, reduced to this issue of systems and structures in society that are unequal. And really what we're hearing these days is the original sin is racism. But what I find what I find so interesting about this is only certain people are racists. Which is very weird, because when we're using their own definition of racism, some of them at least, you could say, well, I can see some racism in your own quarters, but they don't want to talk Mm -hmm. about that. So what about some of the inequality in applying their own philosophy to themselves? I think,
3: Janet, as I looked at this in, in great depth over the last few years, what I saw more and more clearly was that what ideological social justice is today is really, it's just, it's in so many ways just identical to uh, traditional Marxism. Yeah. Traditional Marxism divides the world into oppressors and oppressed. It's, a, it's this strict binary. The oppressors have power, the oppressed um, do not. The oppressors are evil, the oppressed are innocent. And in Karl Marx's day, you know, that binary was defined in terms of economics and class, so oppressors were people that owned property, were capitalists, and the oppressed were workers. Um, the only thing that's changed with ideological social justice, uh, you know, going back to Marx's original theory then, of course, it was a revolutionary theory. You had to, for society to become perfect, you had to overthrow the oppressive class through revolution. Right. The only thing that's changed with ideological social justice is they've added new classes of oppressed and oppressors. So they've added a racial class to it. So now, if you're white, you are oppressor. And if you're not white, essentially what they would call a person of color, um, you are by kind of nature a oppressed victim. Right. Um, they've also added sex, male, female, and they've added sexuality in terms of of gender identity as well. If you're a straight kind of, uh, you know, person who believes in biblical sexuality, you're an oppressor. If you are a a quote-unquote sexual minority, LGBTQ, then you're a, a victim. Everything else is exactly the same. All they've done is replaced or added to the list of, of victims and oppressors. But, right. But the revolutionary aspect is the same. Everything is the same.
0: You're right about that. So when Kimberly Crenshaw comes along with this intersectionality theory, we saw that on display, for example, in the Women's March around the time of President Trump's first inauguration. And you had all of these classes coming together, together. And if you were multiple things at once, you were higher on the intersectionality scale. If you were a black lesbian woman, then you were you know, higher on the, on the oppressed right. scale scale than you would be if you were just a black heterosexual man, you know, you're more oppressed. But the the funny thing is, is they are cherry picking who the oppressed are, irrespective of actual data. This is what really floors me, because a lot of us will go back and say, we fought an entire civil war in this country to free slaves, Can we not move on from that? That was a good thing, was it not? We have some bad things in our past, but we rectified those things or at least gave it our best shot. We did what we did in the 1960s with the Civil Rights Act. So why can't we go back and look at some of the good things we did to try to overcome it? Is it just this revolutionary mindset that is so determined to undo America as it was handed down to them that is driving this more than logic, more than facts and rational thought?
3: There absolutely is no question about it. In the same way that Marxism wasn't originally, the class division wasn't really rooted so much in, in fact. So you, you know, in communist Russia, if you were a capitalist, it didn't matter if you had done all sorts of good works and were very generous and very charitable with your wealth. If you were wealthy, you were evil and you needed to go to the gulags. Yeah. So it didn't have any basis in reality or facts. It was just a given. You know, it was based on that kind of religious assumption. And it's no different today. So, yeah, it's not based on reality so much of, I mean, there's there's a degree of truth to it, of course, but just like there was in in kind of what I call Marxism 101, there was a degree of truth to the fact that a lot there was, you know, people with wealth were You could be oppressive to people that didn't have it, but it wasn't so much based on the reality of that as it was just this kind of religious presupposition.
0: Yeah, right. And based on grievance. Yep, exactly.
3: So it's not, it's hard to win a kind of a logical debate on this because it really isn't based on logic or reason as much as it is a religious presupposition. Right. It's a faith belief system.
0: Yeah. That's right. That's right. So, what do you make of the fact that there are increasingly people within evangelical circles and seminaries and in ministries and in churches and denominational leaders, not the typical liberal mainline? Uh, leaders of old who we expect and we saw them go through all that back in the day not the main line the conservative evangelical circles and the ministry it is rife and i'm sure you know obviously you know this scott and a lot of listeners know this why are we falling for this when it should be very obvious if we know our bibles that there's a big difference between biblical justice and social justice why are so many people falling for this
3: That's such a good question, and that's really why I wrote the book, Janet, because I was seeing evidence not just of kind of progressive evangelicals, but mainstream, you know, evangelicals really buying into this ideology, and it really surprised me, and it it concerned me greatly, and so I just felt like I needed to do my little part to kind of, you know, kind of raise an alarm that this is not biblical. As to why it happened, there's many reasons, but I think one of the most compelling goes back to something we were talking about earlier, that divide that happened in the church a hundred years ago where you had um, you know the social ge- the social not social gospel, the social gospel folks they hung on to this idea that we've got to change society, but they abandoned the gospel, right? Yeah, right. Uh, and then on the uh, other side, the fundamentalist side, they said, no, we can't abandon the gospel, but they kind of gave up on the idea that we have to influence society and culture, and justice itself even became kind of a suspicious word for many of them. So you had a generation of evangelicals that kind of lost their way in terms of w- what does ministry in culture to the poor, to the oppressed? What does that look like? Now, evangelicals have a rich heritage if you go back, you know, hundreds of years, even to the early church, but we lost our way. Now you have many young Christians, let's say they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, they are kind of rebelling against their parents who didn't kind of have this kind of strong theology of justice or care for the poor. They want to kind of recover that, but they don't have any biblical basis for that they're so they're taking their cues from the secular culture and they're kind of borrowing these ideas from the secular culture who have the corner on the market almost now for what it means to do justice. That's I think for me the most compelling reason. What I'm trying to say is to the church, we have a we have the true basis for culture change and justice and concern for the poor, but it's biblical. Let's recover that. Let's not just on one hand, abandon this, or on the other hand, just borrow the kind of the worldly ideas from our secular culture on this. Let's recover our own history and tradition on this.
0: Totally right. What would you emphasize, Scott, when we're going back to the true meaning of biblical justice? What are the concepts that we need to recover and emphasize?
3: Well, first and foremost, what we talked about, that any true social change has to begin with evangelism, heart and mind change, that the gospel is the beginning of any true social ch- movement for social change. We cannot let go of that. And then beyond that, yeah, just an application of a biblical worldview in terms of what does it mean to be a human being? All people are made with dignity and worth and value. Um, and then secondly, you know, when it comes to justice, uh, you know, the, the justice has to be applied, you know, uh, impartially, uh, regardless of sex or Skin color and things like that. Yes, and yes, we have to be—we, you know, we have to be a voice for marginalized, voiceless people. There is real oppression in this world. Think about the Chinese Uyghurs mm-hmm. uh, today. I mean, we need to be a voice for for people that are that are suffering today. And so, uh, we need. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a strong basis for for that kind of really important work for the church to do. We just can't do it according to the categories and the presuppositions of this this false ideology.
0: Yeah, very well said. And what do you think will actually happen in evangelicalism if we continue to go in the direction of social justice? What will this do, do you think, to the visible church if this ideology continues to spread and infect the younger generations? In 20 years, you'll have SJWs as far as the eye can see, and that's not going to bode well for Christianity
3: well my my basic appeal to even my evangelical brothers and sisters is this that you have to see ideological social justice as a worldview, and so you cannot hold on to it and a biblical worldview at the same time. one is going to have to give way to the other and that's my fear is that um, you know you, eventually you're going to see biblical people losing their biblical faith in favor of this ideology, and people will leave the faith um So I just am saying, you just can't hold—these are incompatible worldviews, you can't hold on to both of them, choose the truth, choose the biblical worldview, and abandon these false ideas. They're wrong, and they they harm people, they uh, harm—even though they use words like justice and equality, they actually harm people and society. We, we, We are tasked with loving our neighbor and doing good for our society. So we've got to move in the other direction.
0: No doubt about it. Well, the name of the book, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice by Scott David Allen. So good to have you here, Scott. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Thanks, Janet. Really appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you. Thanks for being here. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499 or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com.
2: This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: Let me just get the important headline out of the way when we're talking about last night's presidential debate. Who was the loser? I'm going to go with Chris Wallace. I have never seen a worse debate in my life or a worse moderator than Chris Wallace. What a disgrace that guy was. He might as well have taken Joe Biden at one point told him to go home and just taken his place as his stand in, because that's what he did for over an hour and a half last night as President Trump struggled to talk. He jumped in as much as he could, and sometimes he probably shouldn't have done that. But Biden interrupted. He, it was a catastrophe. It was terrible from a moderator standpoint. It was an embarrassment. And, you know, that was one thing that people were saying and commenting about on social media. The only thing that the Republicans and the Democrats can agree about tonight is that Wallace was a disaster. Actually, I don't think the Democrats would agree with it at all. All he did was prop up Biden and have double standards and yell at Trump for interrupting and saying that Trump interrupted more while Wallace interrupted Trump. It it, It's just total train wreck. But I want to get to some of the issues. So I'm going to play some of these cuts from last night if you were... Well, let's just say blessed enough to not have to sit through that whole thing. See, we sit through the debate so you don't have to. Although I don't really believe that you should avoid watching the presidential debates. I think you should watch every single presidential debate because I think it's important as an American citizen who has the responsibility and the freedom to vote in November to know these candidates and to know what they stand for. So let's go first to the subject of Obamacare, for example. Joe Biden had this to say. Let's listen to Congress.
5: One of the big debates we had with 23 of my colleagues trying to win the nomination that I won were saying that Biden wanted to allow people to have private insurance still. They can, they do, they will under my proposal. It's not what you've said, but and it's not what your party has said. That is simply. Your party lie. doesn't say it. Your party wants a, to
1: go socialist my medicine. My party is and me. Socialist health Right now, I am and the And they're going to dominate party. you, Joe. You know
5: that. I am the Democratic Party right now. The platform of the Democratic Party is what I, in fact, approved of.
0: Now, this is an interesting cut that I want to keep in perpetuity because he is basically what an arrogant thing. I am the party. Well, sure, he's at the top of the party as the Democrat nominee for the presidency. But at the same time, he then goes on to say he doesn't believe in the Green New Deal. That's not my plan. Well, there are an awful lot of people in your party who are all about the Green New Deal. So I'm wondering if they were cringing while they were listening to you last night, Mr. Biden. It's just crazy. It's crazy. It's a very arrogant statement. It was a very strange moment. Now, Chris Wallace went after Trump for his alleged lack of a plan for replacing Obamacare. Listen to cut two.
2: Over uh, the last four years, you have promised to repeal and replace Obamacare, but you have never, in these four years, come up with a plan—a comprehensive plan to I replace have. Obamacare. Of course, I have. Well, I'll I give got you an rid of the individual mandate.
1: I got when rid I, of the individual mandate, which was a big is not chunk a of Obamacare. That is absolutely a big thing. That was that, the worst I, I didn't part ask of Obamacare. But, sir, Chris, You're that was the worst him, part me. of Obama. Let me ask my question. Well, I'll, I'll ask Joe. I, 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 the individual no, mandate I, was the most unpopular aspect of
2: Obamacare. I got rid of it. Like and to, we will protect Mr. people Mr. President, I'm the moderator nations. of this debate, and I would like you to let me ask my question, and then you can answer your Go ahead. question. You, in the course of these four years, have never come up with a comprehensive plan to replace Obamacare. And just this last Thursday... You signed a largely symbolic executive order to protect people with pre-existing conditions five days before this debate. So my question, sir, is what is the Trump health care plan?
0: Wow. What 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 a wonderful neutral moderator. Right. That's to show you exactly what kind of tone Wallace took with Trump throughout the course of the night. He didn't treat Biden like that. He didn't go after Biden. He missed all sorts of opportunities to really wallop Biden with some difficult questions. Let's see on the subject of Hunter Biden and the millions of dollars that he got from the wife of the former mayor of Moscow. Maybe we could talk about Burisma. Oh, no, we're not going to talk about that. Let's move on to climate change. Lots and lots of moments like that where Wallace could have taken a strong journalistic tack and moved in the direction of actually trying to get tough information out of both candidates, which, by the way, I support. I am not somebody who sits and listens to a debate and says to myself, I really hope he goes easy on my guy, but gets really tough with the other guy. I don't want that. I love actual debates. I love Lincoln-Douglas debates. I know we don't do those anymore, but I want tough questions of both candidates. Why? That's the job of the journalist. That's actually something that you would do that would be a real public service because then nobody could accuse you of being biased. Nobody could accuse you of of revealing to the country who your favorite candidate is. Nobody should know who your favorite candidate is if you're really doing your job. And I know that's another subject, but considering how Chris Wallace really made himself the subject of all of the controversy that rose above the rest of the controversy of the night. He deserves all the lumps he can possibly take. Disgraceful. Now, listen to this. This is Trump's answer to this question about his comprehensive health care plan. This is cut three.
1: First of all, I guess I'm debating you, not him, but that's okay. I'm not surprised. Let me just tell you something. That (laughs) There's nothing symbolic. I'm cutting drug prices. I'm going with favored nations, which no president has the courage to do because you're going against big pharma. Drug prices will be coming down eighty or ninety percent. You could have done it during your forty-seven year period in government, but you didn't do it. (laughs) Nobody's done it. So we're cutting health care. All of the things that we've done, insulin, I give you an example. Insulin, it's going to it was destroying families, destroying people, the cost I'm getting it for so cheap. It's like water. You want to know the truth? So cheap. Take a look <laughs> at all of the drugs that what we're doing, prescription drug prices. We're going to allow our governors now to go to other countries to buy drugs okay. because when, they I, pay just a I, tiny fraction.
0: I say this what is what open discussion. No, this ask is big stuff. Sir. All right. Let's move on. Let's move on. Trump, you've made a few points and let's move on. Let's save Biden. Let's move on. I mean, this is again. Just the same stuff that went on time after time after time after time. And meanwhile, Joe Biden and his behavior was infantile. That's the word that I've chosen to describe Joe Biden's behavior last night. It's as if the DNC took him aside and said, Joe, if you get flustered, just insult Trump again. Call him a name or tell him to shut up or call him a racist. Let's say he was called a racist. He was called a clown. I kind of lost track of all the nasty things Biden said. Is that debate? Is that the sort? Yeah. Isn't this what they talked about with Trump? Trump doesn't have the temperament to be president. He says mean things. He calls people names. He called him Lion Ted Cruz. He made fun of Jeb Bush for being low energy. Is this the kind of temperament? Is this the kind of human being that you think deserves to be in the Oval Office? Well, I hope all those Never Trumpers in particular who made such a big deal over that issue with Donald Trump will say the same thing today about Joe Biden. I want to play one of those moments for you. Listen to Cut four
2: if Senate Republicans go ahead and confirm Justice Barrett. uh, There has been talk about ending the filibuster, or even packing the court, adding to the nine justices there. You call this a distraction by the president, but in fact, it wasn't brought up by the president. It was brought up by some of your Democratic colleagues in the the Congress. So my question to you is you have refused in the past to talk about it. Are you willing to tell the American people tonight whether or not you will support either ending the filibuster or packing the court? Whatever
5: position I take on that, that'll become the issue. The issue is the American people should speak you should go out and vote. You're in voting now. Vote and let your senators know how strongly you, strong you feel. Court? Let vote now. Are you going to pack the Make court? sure you, in fact, let people know you're a senator. I'm not going to answer the question. Why because you that because, question? because you
4: the question is the, Supreme Supreme is, Justice, the is the question is the radical left. Will you who shut is up, man? man? Oh,
0: that's nice. Very classy. And in fact, what President Trump was doing was what Wallace, Chris Wallace, should have been doing as the moderator, pressing Biden. Why won't you answer the question on whether or not you would end the filibuster and pack the Supreme Court, as so many people on your political side of the aisle have advocated for? Why won't you answer the question? Instead, it was his opponent in the debate who had to answer the question. And it ends with a solid shut up man from the guy who's been in government for 47 years and wants to get into the Oval Office, despite all. of his character flaws and all of his dazed and confused behavior over the last several months. Disgraceful. There's more to come, but we do need to pause very quickly. We'll be right back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for What's it like when a pregnant mom sees her baby for the first time?
4: It all came down to the ultrasound, and I saw this little lima bean-looking thing with a halo, which I thought was incredible.
0: A baby wasn't really in the plan for this young mom. After seeing a halo on her baby on ultrasound at a pre-born center, she was still leaning towards abortion.
4: And I got to hear the heartbeat, and I got chills. In that moment, I just felt... God's arms come around me and hug me and tell me that it was going to be okay.
0: Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Ultrasounds save lives. Would you join with Preborn in helping moms to choose life? To donate just call 855-402-BABY That's 855-402-2229 All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229 or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMufford.com
2: You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet.
0: Welcome back. I'm still recovering a little bit from that debate last night. Boy, there's some really bad moments. I really do think that was the worst debate I've ever seen, and I felt very sorry for President Trump. At times, yes, he did interrupt, and yes, he jumped in, but Chris Wallace was disgraceful. That guy should never be able to moderate another debate It was awful. Talk about taking sides and not even bothering to cover it up. As I said before, I think he should have just taken on Trump himself and sent Biden home. Why was Biden even there? He didn't get asked anything tough, anything that the American people need to know about this man. He didn't hold his feet to the fire on anything that's come up. It's just unbelievable to me. And what are some of the things that came up? The Hunter Biden scandal. Oh, yeah, let's move on. No, we're going to move on to climate change. Oh, that's great. How convenient. And then he chastised Trump for interrupting more than Biden. What What was that? Was it like a kindergarten teacher sending you to the corner with a dunce cap? There was no reason to talk about that. He didn't get into the impeachment hoax. President Trump had an opportunity during the course of the night, thankfully, to bring that up. There was no discussion of the greatest political scandal in American history, the Russia impeachment hoax. And by the way, it was yesterday that it was revealed that Hillary Clinton was behind that. If you read the memo that came out on that, no discussion. It's like it never happened. We're not going to talk about the greatest political scandal in American history. Let's just gloss over that. Let's talk about climate change instead. It's just it's dereliction of duty is what it was. And more moments. Chris Wallace didn't ask Biden to repudiate Antifa or Black Lives Matter, but Trump was asked to repudiate and or denounce white nationalists, white supremacists. And by the way, by the way. There was a moment where Joe Biden once again perpetrated that lie about very fine people. The president called the white nationalists and the white supremacists very fine people. Total lie. I go back to Steve Cortez. His piece in 2019, Trump didn't call neo-Nazis fine people. And he says, my colleagues seem prepared to dispute our own networks, correct contemporaneous reporting and the very clear transcripts of the now infamous Trump Tower presser on the tragic events of Charlottesville. And here's the exact quote. President Trump said, excuse me, they didn't put themselves down as neo-Nazis. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group. I saw the same pictures you did. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. He did not call white supremacists very fine people. He was talking about a dispute where there were good people on both sides over the removal of the statue. So where was Wallace on that? He didn't jump in to correct Joe Biden on a blatant lie. And meanwhile, Biden is spending the entire evening calling Trump a liar. Again, back to the DNC. If you get flustered, Joe, just call Trump a liar. Just say he doesn't have a plan. He's a liar. You're lying. You don't tell the truth. We know he doesn't tell the truth. Giggle, giggle, giggle. Flash the veneers. And curtain. That's about what we got. Incredible. Now, there was a discussion about covid so I want to go to some of that audio. Joe Biden slamming Trump's response to the coronavirus pandemic. This is cut five.
5: He knew it was a deadly disease. What did he do? He's on tape is acknowledging he knew it. He said he didn't tell us or give people a warning of it because he didn't want to panic the American people. You don't panic. He panicked. In addition to that, what did he do? He went in and he. And I laid out again in July what we should be doing. We should be providing all the protective gear. possible. We should be providing the money the House has passed in order to be able to go out and get people the help they need to keep their businesses open. Open schools that cost a lot of money. You should get out of your bunker and get out of the sand trap and get in, in your golf course and go in the Oval Office and bring together the Democrats and Republicans and fund what needs to be done now to save lives.
0: Unbelievable that he tells President Trump to get out of his bunker when he's been hiding in his basement for the last several months and not actually going out and campaigning for the presidency. So many lies in that particular cut. But don't you remember President Trump shut down travel from China early on? and was called a xenophobe and a racist for shutting down travel from China. From top Democrats, don't you remember he had press conferences every single day with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks? That went on for a long time. Don't you recall how President Trump responded with the PPE and making sure that we could get all the face masks and ventilators that we thought the demand would be there for? Turned out that we didn't need as many as we thought we did. But that was a good thing. And, you know, Biden, oh, no, he's terrible. He's terrible. He was down in his bunker. This is what Trump responded. This is cut six. If we would
1: have listened to you, the country would have been left wide open, millions of people would have died, not 200,000, and one person is too much. It's China's fault. It should have never happened. They stopped it from going in, but it was China's fault. And by the way, when you talk about numbers, you don't know how many people died in China. You don't know how many people died in Russia. You don't know how many people died in India. They don't exactly give you a straight count, just so you understand. But if you look at what we've done, I closed it and you said he's xenophobic. He's a racist and he's xenophobic because you it's didn't think I should have closed our COVID. country. Wait, Wait a minute. It says two minutes. You didn't think we should have closed our country because you thought it was too, it was terrible. You wouldn't have closed it for another two months. By my doing it early, in fact, Dr. Fauci said President Trump saved thousands of lives. Many of you, a Democrat governors said... President Trump did a phenomenal job. We worked with the governor. Oh, really? Go take a look. The governors said I did a phenomenal job. Most of them said that. In fact, people that would not be necessarily on my side said that.
0: Right. Well, he's actually right about that. Let's talk about what Cuomo did. Let's talk about Cuomo and how Cuomo sent COVID positive patients back into nursing homes and killed so many people by doing that. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the train wreck that is New York City under de Blasio. They're not going to talk about that. They don't want to talk about the blue cities. And speaking of blue cities, it would have been nice if Chris Wallace actually would have had a substantive discussion on the violence and the riots and the looting and the killing of innocent black lives across America at the hands of the left. But I guess he just didn't have time. They did talk a little bit about violence in the streets. And at one point, he said to both of the candidates, will you ask your supporters not to engage in civil unrest if the election doesn't go your way? As if both sides are committing civil unrest. It was the most dishonest thing. But this was a good Trump rant on the whole issue of violence in the streets from the left and the subject of law and order. This is Cut7.
1: We just got the support of 200, 250 military leaders and generals. Total support. Law enforcement, almost every law enforcement group in the United States. I have Florida. I have Texas. I have Ohio. I have every, excuse me, Portland. The sheriff just came out today and he said, I support President Trump, I don't think you have any law enforcement. You can't even say the word law enforcement, because if you say those words, you're going to lose all of your radical left supporters. And why aren't you saying those words, Joe? Why don't you say the words law enforcement? Because you know what? If they called us in Portland, we would put out that fire in a half an hour, but they won't do it because they're run by radical left Democrats. If you look at Chicago, if you look at any place you want to look, Seattle, they heard we were coming in the following day and they put up their hands and we got back. Seattle. Minneapolis, we got it back, Joe, because we believe in law and order, but you don't. The top 10 cities and just about the top 40 cities are run by Democrats and in many cases radical left. And they've got you wrapped around their finger, Joe, to a point where you don't want to say anything about law and order. And I'll tell you what, the people of this country want and demand law and order, and you're afraid to even say it.
0: Excellent moment. Very effective, and I think it was important that he got that in because, to me, that is one of, if not the top issue. On people's minds going into this election, at least on the Republican side and with independents, and I think with some Democrats. What are we going to be as a nation? Are we going to be so divided that we're going to have continual rioting and attacking of police in the streets and people driving through crowds and hitting Trump supporters like occurred just a few days ago? Or are we going to be a nation of law and order? And the more that Trump is able to point out that Biden does not want to be the law and order candidate lest he offend the radical leftists in his party, The better because that shows the American people which side cares about them that's what it's all about caring about small business owners and caring about people who live in these cities who just want to go out on the streets and be able to function like normal citizens this is important stuff and no thanks to Chris Wallace it was good that Trump was able to get that in boy it's gonna be a rough road heading into November but at least we got our first snapshot of the difference between these two parties. We thank you so much for being with us here at Janet Mefford today. We'll see you next time. God bless.